This is a special Share Encore production you can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that my friend Jeffrey Dorn is right here with me in the studio. We're going to continue our discussion on the um, book of Revelation and end times. We're breaking this into about a seven-part series, and this would be series number three. Yeah, so number three. But he's uh, got here a little bit early, so he sat in during the time that I was talking to Pastor Rusty George, and we were talking a little bit about social media during the break, and he told me something. I said, Jeff, you have to say that to the listeners. And A, Jeff, welcome to the show, and B, say what you said to me during the break. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. Um, Continue our study of the end times. Yeah, last week, someone from one of the Christian schools here in town uh, let me know that they had just posted uh, on Facebook an ad for a teacher position. And literally, I don't have the ad in front of me, but it literally said about this, uh, looking for a Christian who loves math and teenagers. And that ad on Facebook was taken down that day, and the Christian school was told that that ad does not conform to their guidelines for posting. So I don't know what was so offensive about that ad. Otherwise, maybe they, maybe they just don't like math or something. You Probably, know? yeah. Probably, that's what that might mm-hmm. be it. So, But it just said, looking for a Christian who loves math and teenagers, and that ad was taken down by Facebook. Wow. What if it... What if it, if it said looking for a, a Muslim teacher who loves math and teenagers? Yeah, if you had a school that's based on the religion of Islam and you advertise for a, a Muslim, I, I doubt that Facebook would take that down. If you're a Jewish school or a Hindu school, or I just I don't think any of those ads would have mm-hmm. been taken down. So I don't know what's so offensive about a Christian school, for goodness sakes, wanting to hire a Christian teacher to teach at their Christian school, but it yeah. was to Facebook. Well, thanks for sharing that. Let's jump into our lesson three. This is going to be great. So at the start, because, you know, this is every two weeks, I just thought I'd do a quick review again like we okay. did last time. So the first thing I want to review is kind of the big picture overview of the end time. So just so everybody kind of has the from 30,000 feet, what is the sequence of the major events uh, that encompass God's plan for the end of the age. So I believe it starts with the rapture of the church. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am also. I think that's the picture of the rapture. We talked about that a little more in week one. Uh, after the church is raptured, taken out of the way, taken, uh, uh, Revelation says we are not appointed for this time of wrath that is coming upon the world. So the church is taken out of the way. Next is a seven-year tribulation, a seven-year period of seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments and a whole bunch of events. And today we're going to talk about some of the characters. So last time we talked about some of the events. Today we're going to talk about some of the characters of the end time. Excellent. And at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, Jesus returns to earth. Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open, and the rider on the white horse, and his eyes are ablaze, the sword coming out of his mouth, and the armies of heaven are following him, and he comes back to earth and treads the winepress 
of the wrath of God. That is Armageddon. We Mm -hmm. typically refer to that as Armageddon. And he then establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. I I bet a lot of us, I mean, if if you looked around our government and our country, I mean, do you want a righteous king to come back and rule this place? I do. And that's actually what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. So I believe the next event after Jesus returns at the second coming when his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives is he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years on earth and he will rule and reign. And we, by the way, the church in our glorified bodies will reign with him over the nations, over the people uh, of that kingdom. At the end of the thousand year reign, uh, Satan is released. I won't go into that detail, but there's this thing called the great white throne judgment. Heaven and earth flee from God's presence. Um, there is a spiritual judgment, the great white throne. That's judgment day. Mm-hmm. That's the day that all of the lost from the beginning of time until then will be judged before God. And sadly, none of their names will be found in the Lamb's book of life. And they are then thrown into the lake of fire and the lake of fire is the second death. That's when God then makes all things new. John in Revelation sees a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And the and he says, nothing unrighteous will ever in, enter into it. And then Revelation 21, 3, one of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture. And then the dwelling of God will be with man. Heaven and earth come together, and that's our eternal state. And Paul says in Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the wonders that God has in store for us. Interestingly, that eternal state, we actually don't have a lot of information about that time. We have about one chapter in the at the end of the book of Revelation. That's the streets of gold, the pearly gates, um, you know, things like that. We don't have a lot, but we know this. God will be there. He will dwell with us, and we will be with him forever and ever. Mm. Thrills me, Jeff. It thrills me for all the people listening who are born again, whose name is written in the book of life. Mm -hmm. And it horrifies me for those who are outside of God's family right now. I have a sense of urgency uh, to. Yeah. One of the things that I talk about when I speak of the great white throne judgment is remember, we know people who are not saved. Right. And if we are, if we're on one side of this judgment, so the picture is God is on the throne Christ is on the throne. We are on that throne. Don't you know that we will judge the world, Paul says, even angels? And before us is going to be lost humanity. Mm -hmm. And we're going to know some of them. By the way, it's going to be a very sad day, right? God is a God that wishes none to perish. So on that day when most go through that broad road and that wide gate to destruction, I think it's going to break God's heart, and I think it's going to break our hearts. But then every tear is wiped. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That is when that verse comes, and then right. he wipes every tear mm-hmm. from our Boy, eyes. That's, that's really hard, hard to think. It is. And, it you know, there's uh, at the very beginning of Revelation, week one, we talked about this verse that says, Blessed is he who reads the words of this book and heeds the words that are written in it. I think one of the great blessings for studying God's plan for the end of the age is that sense of urgency for the time that we live in. Do you have loved ones that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are going to be left behind. Mm-hmm. I was just reading uh, uh, someone here, a prophecy person, their letter was a kit that you can buy 
to leave with some of your friends who aren't saved. It's basically the left behind kit, right? <laughs> and it has all the information about the end times, what to expect. Here's a copy of the Bible wow. and so on. So, yeah, but we shouldn't just send kits. We should tell them that you too can be saved from sin and death. Mm-hmm. All right. Lovely overview. Let's yeah. jump in now. All right. So the characters. So there's uh, a number of characters. So, you know, you can't, uh, when you when you enter into a play, you know, one of the first things you do is look at the playbill and you kind of read about the characters. That's what we're going to do Okay, today. great. So the first character I want to bring up is Satan himself. He's referred to in Revelation 12 as a dragon. So Revelation 12 says, Then there is a sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. And his tail swept away a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. Well, most understand this red dragon to be Satan, the devil, and that his sweeping of a third of the stars are most likely the fallen angels that followed him in his original rebellion. Um, We then see that he is described in many ways throughout Scripture, right? So in Genesis, we see him as a serpent who is tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Isaiah 14, he's seen as this morning star, which is where we get that name Lucifer from. Um, He's called Satan in the book of Job, the devil in Matthew. He's called the evil one, the father of lies in the book of John. It's interesting. It says when he speaks, he lies because that is his native tongue. Hmm. God does not lie. God is a God of truth. God never lies. Satan lies. That is his native tongue. Uh, Matthew calls him the tempter. So he says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones and to turn into bread and so on. Uh, John also calls him the prince of this world and the God of this age. Satan has authority right now over this world. Uh, First John says the whole world is in control of the evil one. For whatever God's plans are, he's allowing this Satan to muck stuff up down on earth. So that's why he's called the God of this age. You wonder why there's bad things happening in this world? Uh, And we often say, well, don't you know God's in control? Well, the scripture actually says that the whole world is in control of the evil one. He's the prince of the air, the God of this age. He has a certain level of authority to muck stuff up down here. Now, of course, in the end, whose will will be done? Who's sovereign over all creation? Who is going to defeat this guy uh, once and for all in the end? See that? But if you have a question about why bad things are happening, don't blame God. Blame the enemy. We live in a fallen world with fallen people and a fallen angel running around. Okay, you got it. Hmm. So what happened to him? In Isaiah 14, we see that he was cast out of heaven. This is where there's kind of the famous I will statements. There's five I wills. And one of them is that he says, I will raise my throne above that of the most high God. Satan wanted to be like God. Now, it's interesting. Think about this. You're an angel, probably a very powerful, you know, chief angel of some sort. Many believe that he was kind of the chief angel amongst the angelic kingdom. And you know God's omniscient. You know he's omnipotent, omnipresent. If you birth a rebellion, don't you know that it's going to be defeated before it even gets going? And yet he does it anyway. Mm. And the only explanation I can come up with is pride. 
right? Pride. Pride goes before a fall. And so he was cast out. He lost his position in heaven. The next place we see him is in the garden. Interesting, at the cross, it says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and principalities. I think in some way at the cross, their power was knocked down, you know, a couple degrees somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I don't have any other verses on that, but it just says that they were disarmed in some way. I like that verse. All right. We'll take a short break. Jeff Redorn is our guest, and we are talking about uh, end times in the book of Revelation, and we're going to do this in a seven-part series, and today is part three. We've got uh, today and then four more to go. I did the math for you. Be right back. This is a special Share Encore production. You can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. I did sharpen my pencil because I'm taking notes. Jeff Dorn's my guest today. We're talking about Revelation and times. And I know we uh, got a lot to cover, Jeff, so let's get back to it. Well, we were talking about this first character, uh, Satan. Um, I, I hate to dwell on him in this whole thing, but he's an important character of this this is this is why we have this end times, really, is because of him. I wanted to mention quickly what he does today. It says that he blinds unbelievers. He's the prince of this world. He tempts believers. He masquerades as an angel of, of light, and he prowls around the earth. But never forget, whenever you are, are discussing this or reading about him, he is a defeated foe. He is defeated, and he knows that he is a defeated foe. And remember what what uh, what God says, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God is in you, and so Satan really cannot touch you. Do not fear him who can destroy the body. Sure, he has power over the physical world, but he cannot touch your eternal fate. That's in God's hands. It's in heaven, shielded by God's power until that day. So he he really can't touch you eternally. So, all right, let's go to the next character, the beast of Revelation. So in Revelation 13, we see this beast coming up out of the sea. Uh, And some of the descriptions of him kind of sound a little bit like Satan. So uh, this, this beast is commonly referred to as the Antichrist, right? So this Antichrist is the beast of Revelation. This is the same guy that Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 9, when he saw a little bit of the peace of the end times, this this man, this ruler who will come, who signs a firm covenant, sets up an abomination, and then the end is poured out upon him, Daniel 9 says. In, Re- in Revelation 13, we learn that this beast uh, that, that John saw comes up out of the sea. I believe the sea is a metaphor for the Gentile world. Okay, We're going to see the second beast, which comes out of the earth, and I think that's going to mean Israel. So I think the the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile. It also says, John sees in Revelation 17, that the beast that you saw once was, now listen to this, does this describe anybody that you've ever been known that's been born, all right? The beast which you saw, now this is John in 90 AD, the beast that you saw once was, now is not, but is coming again up out of the abyss 
and goes to his destruction. So this beast, I don't think, is going to be born like a traditional man. This beast that John saw that comes on the scene, this Antichrist, once was, meaning that he existed prior to 90 AD, now is not, is not on the face of the earth, but is coming again out of the abyss, out of the underworld, probably from Hades, where the dead are stored. So I think he's one who comes back to life. And because he is going to be indwelt by Satan himself at the midpoint of the tribulation. Um, So we see that later in the book as well. What does he do? I I have to pause because I got (laughs) to try to push some of my brains back into my skull right now. You know, there's. Who are we talking about? Uh, Boy. So the question is first, let's establish this. Do you know anybody? That has come out of the abyss. Everybody you know has been born, right? Mm -hmm. John specifically says, actually twice, twice, maybe three times in Revelation 17, that the beast he saw comes up out of the abyss. He once was, now is not, and is coming up out of the abyss. There is a popular teaching amongst a lot of prophecy folks that Satan has already always had an antichrist waiting in the wings because Satan doesn't know when the end times is going to come, and the Antichrist has to be an adult in order to play the role of the Antichrist. So he's always had someone in the wings in every generation. He doesn't need to have an Antichrist waiting in the wings in every generation, because this Antichrist, I believe, just as John says, is going to come up out of the abyss. I think he's going to be a resurrected person from history who existed prior to 90 AD, then was not, and is coming back out of the abyss. Hmm. And then will be indwelt by Satan and have enormous powers over the earth, especially in the second half of the so tribulation. So it's like Satan's understudy getting ready to go on. Uh, yes. Okay. And in fact, even That's more than that, because he's going to be indwelt by Satan, Satan is going to give this character his power uh, in the second half. of And the- this person will be the Antichrist. And that's he is called... The Antichrist, the lawless one, the first beast, or the beast of Revelation. So there's actually many descriptions so, of him. So interesting, Jeff, because there's been so many people speculating about certain people in history in the last hundred years who might have been the Antichrist. But oh, according I, to John, that's not even possible. No, I've got a whole list of people. It's pages long of people who thought, uh, yeah. some, you know, somebody was the Antichrist sure. from kings and presidents and princes and popes and whatever. And, you know, there's been a lot of people who have speculated on, you know, um, then the number. We'll talk about the number of his name here in a okay, minute as good. well. So, But one of the things I want to understand, you know, when people take this class, uh, one of their comments is, well, what do you say to people who are fearful of the end time, fearful of this, the, all, the, all the wrath and tribulation and the Antichrist and so on? And it's like, just remember, we won't be here. We will not not be here. That first seal, when the Antichrist is released, this beast of Revelation is released, comes after the rapture of the church. We should be looking for a Christ from heaven, not an Antichrist from the abyss. Amen? Amen. Now, John also says, just to clarify, that there's already Antichrists that have come here already. As as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. So the, the general interpretation is anybody who's opposed to Christ is really an Antichrist. Many, many Antichrists have come. But then there is this character that we refer to as the Antichrist, 
And clearly, even John in First John says that he is coming. He's not yet come. So this is the character that Daniel talks about. We see him in Matthew. Jesus himself said, so when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple of God. Well, who does that? It's done by these characters in the book of Revelation. So um, what else about this guy? Antichrist. Uh, oh, almost every verse that mentions this guy also mentions that he goes off to destruction, that he comes to his end. Uh, he is also a defeated foe. Uh, there's no question about that. So uh, if you're reading about this character, know that he's defeated foe as well. Mm-hmm. He's going to be done. All right, next character, um, the false prophet. So this is the second beast of Revelation 13. I, I mentioned this earlier. This beast comes out of the earth. And I think that is a symbolic reference to being to Israel and, and, and is a clue that this false prophet, this second beast of Revelation, comes out of Israel, will be a, a Jew. This is the some of the things that he does. Now listen to this list and see if this sounds like somebody we know. He speaks like a dragon, but he gets his power from that dragon, meaning Satan. He exercises all the authority of the first beast. He makes the inhabitants of the earth worship the first beast. He performs great and miraculous signs on earth, even causing fire to come down from heaven. He deceives the inhabitants of the earth. He orders them to set up an image of the beast in the temple. I think that's the abomination. And he causes all to worship the first beast. Well, this false prophet sounds a little bit like a counterfeit true prophet, doesn't he? Jesus came and performed many miracles and and caused all to worship God Mm -hmm. and point to God. This false prophet does all of his miracles and his teachings to point to the false God. All right, cool. And in fact, many have described these three characters— uh, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet as the unholy trinity. These three characters, like, you know, that are counterfeiting our trinity. Interesting. Now, interesting, they they typically make Satan out to be God, Jesus out to be the Antichrist, and that leaves the false prophet to be the Holy Spirit. But from the list we just read, it's really the false prophet who is the false Jesus it's really the beast who sets himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God as the false God, and it's Satan who indwells the beast, so he's really the false Holy Spirit. So I agree with the false trinity concept. I just assign them a little bit differently. Okay. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're going to continue after the break our study on end times, the book of Revelation. We're doing this in a seven-part series. This is number three. We'll be right back. This is a special Share Encore production you can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Prime time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. 
back with Jeff Ferdorn. We are talking about End Times, the book of Revelation. We just went through, we're talking about the characters in, in the End Times, and we just got done discussing the unholy trinity, which was nicely uh, shared, Jeff. I appreciate that. Now, we're going to talk about what? Well, the rest of the characters. So let's turn to this group that we see in Revelation. In Revelation 7, verse 1, we see that there's 144,000 people. And it's interesting because there's there's been a number of debates about who these guys are when Scripture actually tells us who they are. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that are sealed by God. I believe that that's a reference to their salvation. They're saved. And and, and you can ask, well, how do these 144,000 get saved if the church is no longer there, the church is gone? Who's preaching the gospel? Well, that's the next group we'll get to in just a minute. The two witnesses come down from heaven and preach the gospel. Um, and we'll see that in a second. So I think these 144,000 believe the testimony of the two witnesses that are sent by God uh, and they become, I'll describe them as super evangelists. You know, Luis Palau just died mm-hmm. this past week from lung cancer. Uh, we were involved in the festival that came to St. Paul back in, I think it was 2004 or 2005, and got a chance to meet him a number of times. I went to several of his president's conferences. Incredible man. Probably preached the gospel to more people than anybody on the planet. There are estimates that he preached to a billion people over his wow. lifetime. I mean, talk about fruit. That man was fruitful. And he handled the word wonderfully. He was just an amazing, amazing man. But these are 144,000 super evangelists who go out into the whole world and hold to the testimony of Jesus and uh, and proclaim him. Um, and they, you know what happens to them? They are all killed during the tribulation, probably later in the tribulation for their faith. In fact, Revelation says they are all beheaded because of their testimony that they held uh, about Jesus. Who sent them? Who what? Who sent these 144,000? Well, who sends us into the world, right? God right. saves us. You know, one of the questions you have is, well, if God saves us, why, when we're saved, we just don't go immediately to heaven? And it's, I think, because God wishes none to perish. He wants us to spread the uh, the testimony of Jesus, that he came and and lived and died on a cross for the sins of the world, was buried and rose again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what these guys are proclaiming. So I think they were saved through the testimony of the two witnesses, who we'll get to next. Um, but uh, but I think they're sent by God to be witnesses, just as we are sent by God. We're ambassadors in this world. And uh, whoever you know is the most super evangelist person you know. My, in my life, Dave Gibson from Grace Church is probably one of the most purposeful evangelist that I know personally. And so I describe these guys as 144,000 Dave Gibsons mm-hmm. going out in the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, all right. Next, the two witnesses. So if all of the church is taken out of the way at the start of the tribulation, before it begins, there will be no believers at the start of the tribulation. No one to preach the gospel, no one to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on earth. And yet we know, as we'll see in a minute, that many, many, many people will believe in Jesus during this seven-year period. We'll get to that in a minute. This is very important, by the way, because some teach 
that once the tribulation begins, no one can be saved, and Scripture just declares that, no, that's not the case. And so we'll see this great multitude up in heaven in just a second. But God gives power, he says, to these two witnesses for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. What do they have the power to do? Well, it's very fascinating. It says, if anybody tries to harm them, fire will come out of their mouths and devour their enemies. These guys can't be touched. Why can't they be touched? Because I think these are two uh, two people that have come down from heaven, sent by heaven. They're the two lampstands that we see in heaven that have now come to earth to proclaim the gospel to the world that is now completely in darkness because there's no one there to preach it. And by the way, I think their their testimony is heard in Israel, and the first believers are these 144,000 uh, who believe their testimony and are saved and then become super evangelists themselves. Now, there are there is a debate about who the identity of these two witnesses, all right? So who are they? Well, I believe the first one is Elijah. And why do I believe that? Because I think actually God tells us that it's Elijah. In Malachi chapter 4, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The Jews have been looking for him, right? The teachers of the law thought, Jesus, well, who do you say that I am? Well, some say that you're Elijah. And they knew that Elijah must come before the Messiah comes. Some thought John the Baptist was Elijah. Uh, And Jesus himself said Elijah must come. Now, John the Baptist was not the Elijah. Uh, There's a couple passages where some think that he was the actually the, the Elijah to come. But no, it is the literal Elijah. Now, did Elijah, here's the key, did Elijah ever die? And the answer is no, he actually never died. Second Kings describes this picture of a chariot coming down and taking Elijah up to heaven. Why is that important? Because at the middle of the tribulation, when no one can touch these guys, the Antichrist is going to come along He's going to be indwelt by Satan, and he is going to kill the two witnesses when no one else could. All right? So the two witnesses are going to get killed at the end of the first half of the tribulation, right in the middle, Mm -hmm. at the hands of this Antichrist who is now indwelt by Satan and has his power. He has the power now to overcome them and strike them dead. All right. So that's that's – now who's the second – uh, of the two witnesses. Now, this one is a slightly more debated. Um, there's a lot of people who say that the second one is Moses uh, because there's a number of reasons. One is at the transfiguration. Who appeared at the transfiguration? Elijah and Moses, right? So, you know, Peter then gets all excited. Hey, should we make build tents for everybody and, you know, cook dinner and have a party? I mean, this is cool. Here's Elijah and Moses <laughs> with us right now. And uh, so that, but what happened? Did Moses, has Moses already been killed? Did he die? The mm-hmm. answer was, well, yes, yeah. he did die. Now, there was that whole thing about Satan fighting over his body, which to this day I really haven't heard a great explanation for what that's all about. Didn't God bury him in an unspecified yeah. place? Yeah. Nobody knows where he's buried. I, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I don't know what that's all about. Yeah. All right. So, but he died. So the two witnesses are going to be killed at the hands of the beast. In the tribulation. Now, I've, the, there's this passage in Hebrews, it's appointed to man to die once and then face judgment. Well, 
Moses already died. How is he going to die again when he comes back? There is another character in the Old Testament who was caught up to heaven and never died. Is that Enoch? Enoch. That's Mm -hmm. exactly right. Enoch, it says in Hebrews that he did not experience death. Uh, He was taken from this life, or Genesis chapter 5, then he was no more because God took him away. Well, it just so happens in the Old Testament, we have two people that were never died and were caught up to heaven. And then in the book of Revelation, in the end, we have two guys coming down from heaven uh, who are supernatural witnesses for God, uh, who have these amazing powers. And for three and a half years, they're testifying. So I actually conclude that the two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch, not Moses. All right. The next group. So one of the great purposes of the end times, of the tribulation period, one, it's the final seven-year period of judgment on Israel. And we're going to talk about that next week. I think we're going to devote about half the show next, or in two weeks, to, um, to Israel. And so this is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th seven of judgment. So this this time is the conclusion of the judgment on the nation of Israel, number one. Number two is God said he would pour his wrath out on the earth, on the unbelieving earth. So that's another purpose of the end times. But three is that, remember, God is a God that wishes none to perish, but all to come to repentance. So I think one of the third reasons uh, for the end times is that there is this great multitude in heaven. So in in Revelation chapter 7, it says that John sees this great multitude in heaven from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So we know that many, many, many multitudes of people are going to believe the testimony of the two witnesses, are going to believe the testimony of the 144,000, or anybody else who's saved, and they are going to be saved, come to faith in Christ, and then we see them in heaven. Well, if they're in heaven, what does that mean? That means they died in some way, shape, or form during that period. It's going to be a nasty period. Remember in Matthew 24, we we saw that it will be a great distress that the world has never seen and will never see again. Mm -hmm. So from plagues and fire and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments at the hands of the beast— and uh, and and governments of the day, many 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 believers, it's not going to are going to die. It's not going to be a a fun place for sure. So, but we know this, um, and I and I make a big deal out of this only because I've heard it taught that once the tribulation starts, no one can believe and be saved. And it's just like, man, that's one of God's great purposes for the end times is to save uh, many, and and we see them. Revelation 7, we see a great multitude in heaven from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So, there. So, now we get to, uh, let, me, let me do this, because we only have a couple minutes before the break, and the next one is Babylon the Great. We need a little more time to, to discuss that. One of the things that happens when the two witnesses are killed at the midpoint of the tribulation is that there's two different reactions by the world. There's a reaction by those who say, hey, wait a minute, don't bury their bodies. Okay, it's kind of like, wait a minute, don't bury their bodies. We want to see what happens. The rest of the world, the rest of the unbelieving world, 
basically celebrates and gives each other presents. And these two people that tormented us are finally dead, you know, like ding dong, the witch is dead mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? And they were all happy and they celebrated. And it's, isn't it, if you go through the book of John, he'll preach, Jesus will preach, and there's always these two reactions. Some believed him and followed him. Others wanted to stone him. And to this day, you can still find there's always two reactions to Jesus. Some will say, tell me more. And others say, I don't want any part of this nonsense. And if you are going to hold out the word of life to people in this world, you will see those two reactions for sure. So the earth dwellers is kind of what they're called in Revelation. They're the ones celebrating those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation say, wait a minute, don't bury them. For three and a half days, their bodies lie in the street. You know why I think they don't, they say don't bury them? Because I think they told them what was going to happen to them. Because after three and a half days, the breath of God comes into them. They come back to life and they go up to heaven, bodily, physically, visibly up into heaven. And the whole world looks on. And so I think those two witnesses were proclaiming to the world, just as Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. I think those two witnesses were proclaiming to the world, look, you knocked this down and we're just going to rise back up to life again after three and a half days. And that's exactly what happens. And I think that event and that testimony is another reason why many, many believe from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Well, all right, we'll take one last break. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're talking about Revelation and end times. Be right back. This is a special Share Encore production. You can give at MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about Revelation end times. And Jeff, I think we've got about 11 minutes left to go, and you've got still 29 minutes of material. So good luck. <laughs> you know, we're, t- we're taking a whole semester class and trying to squeeze it into yeah, these seven weeks. weeks. So, no, yeah. no. All right. So, okay. So who's next? Well, one of the next characters, one of the other big main characters of the end times, actually is discussed uh, quite a bit of, in quite a bit of detail in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. And so it starts out this way. One of the seven angels who said to me, come, and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters with her, with the kings of the earth, committed adulteries, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit and to the desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. It goes on to say this woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And this title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and the Abominations of the Earth. And I saw that this woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. All right, so the next... Two chapters are full of kind of some more details about this woman, this harlot, this mystery Babylon, this woman who rides the beast. So what are the characteristics of of this woman? Well, we just saw some of them. She's a great prostitute. 
Um, her name is Mystery Babylon, and when we get to our identity, that's going to come into play. Uh, she commits adulteries. Now, I don't think this is actual adultery. I think this is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is following after false gods, false ways, false gospels, right? That's what I think that is. She has worldwide influence, yet her sins are great. She claims to be a queen in Revelation 18, verse 7, is very wealthy, is a very wealthy woman, and she has killed saints and apostles, and she is a great city. All right? So actually five times in the book of Revelation, in chapter 17 and 18, she's called a city and a great city. So those are some of the characteristics that are outlined in these two chapters. Now, historically, who do prophecy folks, theologians, believe this mystery Babylon uh, is? What's her identity? Who is she? Well, many say that uh, that this mystery Babylon is representative of the United States of America. That, uh, you know, it's, it's the problem is the United States is a country, right? Not a city. But others say, well, it's Washington, D.C. then uh, representing America. Well, you know, there was no America in the time of John right. in 1980. Right. Um, and I, I think it's just kind of uh, Americentric to believe that, you know, we're named. By the way, that's a common question. Is America in Bible prophecy at all? And, you know, we didn't exist. We're not named in mm-hmm. Bible prophecy. There's many countries that are that existed in the day of Christ in the first century, but we're not one of them other than, I think, one of the nations of the world. The second um, candidate is literal Babylon. So now literal Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, is in modern-day Iraq. And so many, like a Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series, had this mystery Babylon being literal Babylon. Literal Babylon comes back, and uh, that's now the seat of government, if you will, for this Antichrist who's coming. The problem is that in Jeremiah, when God judges Babylon, he specifically says that Babylon uh, is judged and will be desolate forever, Jeremiah 51, verse 62. It will rise no more, 61, 64. Uh, Isaiah 13 says it will never be inhabited or lived in again throughout all generations, and it will be desolate forever, Jeremiah 25 says. So I don't think Babylon, literal Babylon in modern-day Iraq can be this mystery Babylon. Mm-hmm. By, by the way, it, it's not called Babylon in Revelation 17. It's called mystery Babylon, symbolic Babylon. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. All right. So I don't think it's literal Babylon. What's next? All right. Some say that it's actually Jerusalem. All right. Does Jerusalem is a city. What else does Jerusalem meet for the characteristics? Well, God calls her an adulteress, right? She follows after other gods. And so she did commit spiritually adult, a spiritual adultery against God. So she fits some of the characteristics, but I don't think she fits all of the characteristics. But most of all, of Mystery Babylon, God is going to judge this Mystery Babylon so it never rises again. Of Jerusalem, God says it's going to be inhabited forever. See that? Mm-hmm. 
So she can't, I don't think Jerusalem can be Mystery Babylon because Jerusalem is the eternal city. It's going to live forever. It will always be a nation before God and a city before God. In fact, we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in the new heavens and new earth. So I don't think it can be Jerusalem, right? All right, so the next city is Rome. If you study Mystery Babylon, there are one of the characteristics of Miss Mystery Babylon is she sits on seven hills. Well, historically, what is the city that sits on seven hills? Well, that's Rome. Um, you look at all of the other characteristics, and Rome seems to fit. Now, historically, I can tell you this today, one of the most popular interpretations, uh, there's actually one more. And that is uh, Mystery Babylon represents the false religious systems of the world in some way. And so that's a very common teaching as well. But once again, that's not a city. So today I would say probably the most popular interpretations of, of this woman, this harlot, this Mystery Babylon, are probably religious systems in general and or America. But there is also a large swath that believe it's going to be literal Babylon brought back. Uh, I, I can tell you historically in the church— most of the Reformers, this is probably no surprise, right? The Reformers broke away from the Catholic Church. So from Luther um, on through many, many of the Reformers over hundreds and hundreds of years, um, all of them, I shouldn't say all of them, the vast majority of them understood Mystery Babylon to be Rome. So that's the, and by the way, this woman, this harlot, this Mystery Babylon is judged in the end um, now, what role does this mystery Babylon play in the end times? Well, I think it's we see this picture of the woman riding the beast. All right, so the beast is the Antichrist. We see this woman riding this beast. At the midpoint, the beast overcomes the woman and destroys her, and he then sets himself up as God in the temple of God. So if you have this false religious system, whatever it is, right, represented in some way, shape, or form by false religious systems throughout the world or whatever, the beast no longer needs that religious system anymore because he's now God, and he has set himself up as God. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, he alone then is ruling basically over the earth. So you've heard of the one world government the one world religion, and so on and so forth. Well, that's basically more applies more so to the second half of the tribulation than to the whole thing. And he then gets to rule over the earth. You know, here's the rub. You know what he rules over? He rules over God pouring out his final seven judgments on the world. These bold judgments or vile judgments in Revelation 16, that is what the Antichrist and Satan get to rule over, is God pouring out his wrath on the earth. There's the great irony for you, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, two more. Two. How many, how many minutes do we have? We have two. Two. All right. Two more groups. One, the main character, Christ mm-hmm. himself. So we see him in Revelation chapter 1. He's the one that John sees the vision of. He's the one that tells John to write these seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And then we see him coming back at the end of the Revelation. In Revelation 19, heaven is open. He's riding on the white horse. The armies of heaven are following him. All right. The other group, what did we not see? And that is the church. 
we do not see the church really from Revelation chapter 4, where John hears a voice like a trumpet is caught up to heaven, which I think is symbolic of the rapture of the church. Then we see in heaven the 24 elders, which I think represents the church, and they're taking their crowns like we talked about last time and lay them at the feet of Jesus. And we see the church up in heaven. The next place we see them is in Revelation 19 as the bride who has made herself ready, and they are about to return with Christ as the armies of heaven following Jesus back to earth. So we do not see the church in between those periods. They're not one of the characters that show up. So I think it's another strong indication that the rapture happens prior to the tribulation to come. Mm, Fascinating. Jeff, thank you so much. I'm loving this series. We've got three down, four more to go. Jeff Ferdorn has been my guest, and that wraps up our time for today and the show. I sure hope you enjoyed it. It's been great being with you. I always love being with you. I hope you have a wonderful night. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. We're looking forward to our prayer series continuing in the second hour with lots more ahead. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow.